In life, if you're just ridiculously lucky and some crazy shit happens, you have these moments that blow your mind. Things that you never saw coming. Things that leave you wondering how you got so lucky. And that's me, right now, with the upcoming HBO premiere of Winning Time, the series about the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers based upon my book, Showtime. I probably can't appropriately explain how magical this has been, Safe to say, it's helped me maintain my sanity and life optimism over the past two years. And the person who made it happen, more than anyone else, is a screenwriter named Jim Hecht, who arrived at my front door eight years ago, bearing chocolate, a tomato, imitation wine drink, and a crazy-ass dream. Today's episode is the story of the story. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jim Hecht, producer, writer, and the brainchild of Winning Time, the upcoming HBO series based upon my 2014 book, Showtime. And one quick note, when Jim references Max and Rodney, he's referring to Max Borenstein and Rodney Barnes, both Winning Time writers. This is episode number 248. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Jim. This is how we start most of our text chains. It really is, actually. So I I wanted to have you on because there's a show coming out called Winning Time. And it is based upon a book I wrote called Showtime about the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers. And... um, I give you 100% of the credit for this happening, not 98%. I give you 100%. So I don't deserve it. I give it to you. And I just want to go straight into this. Okay. It's 2014, and you and your partner in crime, Jason Schumann, reach out to me. Uh Uh Do you remember what caused you to actually reach out? And I don't remember what the first reach out was. You probably don't either. But what actually causes to happen? Like, where does the kernel of the idea start? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going, I was like in a really dark period of my life, both like personally and professionally, which seems to be when the best things in my life have always come out of. Uh, unfortunately, I wish I could skip that part of the process as a way to just cope with it. I had gotten into meditation in a new way and I was doing this thing and somebody had recently, this guy, Danny Stump, who I've been friends with since college, his career kind of went to the place that I wanted it to go. He wrote like recount game change. And he was like, dude, you got to stop writing the things that you you think other people want to see. Write the show that you would want to see. And it was, you know, a few weeks after that, I was doing this meditation thing. And it kind of hit me a different thing, which was like, you got to stop writing stuff that you like and only write stuff that you love. Because for me, like writing stuff that I even just like is like this soul sucking. What does Jerry Maguire say? Pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about. I feel horrible and it's depressing and I don't know how to do it and I don't do it well. I do a bad job usually, or at least a mediocre job, a professional. But uh, when you write something you love, there's a lot, you know, that can get you through it. That can get you, there's enough of the parts of it that don't feel like work to get you through. And I think it's the only way you're going to get through something that's like eight years like this, you know, of keeping pushing because you love it. Otherwise you're going to give up. I I would give up at some point. So the very next day I was listening to Max Kellerman and Marcellus Wiley on 710 ESPN because I listened to Lakers talk radio and uh, Max was talking about your book. I think you were on. I think you were actually on the show. Is that right? Yeah, I think you were on. 
And uh, I was like, no, I grew up here. You know, I was the kid that would wait outside the Lakers locker room for autographs after the game. Like the best days of my life were my dad driving me up to 405 to go see a Laker game. So, you know, there was so much excitement around magic. We used to go to USC football games and Jerry Buss bought it, brought him to a game and the whole place just erupted. It was after the bird championship. So I was that kid. I lived and died with this team. So I was like, I was at book soup when it opened the next morning and I buy your book and uh, I read it by like 11. I'm not a fast reader, but I read that bam. And then I called my agent. He was like, Jim, I've been watching true detectives. The first season of true detectives at the time. And I was like, I, I didn't know the term limited series. I don't even know if it existed, but I was like, I want to do a show like True Detectives with the Lakers in the 80s based on this book. And he was like, Jim, this is the thing that's going to be written on your gravestone. So I was like, this is going to be a haul and I don't have any money. So I need my richest friend. So I called Jason Schumann because I was like, this guy is going to want a lot of money to option this book. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, regrets. Yeah. So we looked up Lucy Still, who was your agent. She okay. was very tough on us, yeah. but ultimately facilitated an introduction. I debated in college. They were having like a 20-year reunion for debaters of that era. So I flew to DC for that. And then I took the, it was Easter Sunday. I took the train up to New Rochelle and uh, I was there early. Remember, I sent you the email recently. What do I bring for dinner? Because, you know, I'm raised right. And then I went to the grocery store because I was early. So I bought, what was it? Like a block of chocolate a tomato and a bottle of uh, non-alcoholic wine. Correct. And showed up on your doorstep. Wait, so I have to say, I have to fill this in a little. So yeah, please. The thing is like at this point in my career, I had no faith in anything that your business offers, which makes sense. That was very obvious. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, cause everyone's full of shit. Everyone's full of yeah. shit. They all tell a friend of mine always says, there are no bad meetings. Oh, this is going to be great. We know who's going to play this guy. Uh, this is going to be great. Blah, blah. So like by the time you came, I'd had so much bullshit of people trying to opt mm -hmm. stuff that I just was skeptical of it all. So Jim shows up and I basically said, well, you can come because I didn't even, I didn't know who you were. And, you know, I'm like, I guess you can come to dinner. I'm definitely not meeting you in the city. Like I'm not taking <laughs> an hour. I'm not taking half my day to meet some, uh, yet another person who's not going to offer me money, who wants, you know, and it's never going to go anywhere. So if you want to come to New Rochelle, come to New Rochelle and you show up in New Rochelle and you have, I think you brought flowers too, maybe, but you definitely had a block of chocolate wrapped in saran wrap. And it was like baker's chocolate. <laughs> you had a tomato, a big ass tomato. And, um, and you had imitation wine, wine drink. And it was like my sister-in-law's there and my other sister-in-law's there and my parents are there. And my wife, Catherine, was like, who is, what, what the hell is this going on here? And, um, but you were delightful. You couldn't have been nicer. You were just a really nice okay. guy. Yeah. I must've had a good night. I must've been on. I think it was the baker's chocolate. Must've been the baker's <laughs> Could've been, got high on the chocolate and. So did I give you, did I charge you nothing for the rights to this book? Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was, yeah. Your Jeff was so nice. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't. And, and what you said about the, just the sort of, for lack of a better word, cynical outlook towards Hollywood was just so apparent. It was like, we had this disconnect because you're like, this is not ever going to, you're like, this is never going to be anything. And I had so believed that this was going to be, as we, as we put in the treatment for the show, the greatest show ever produced by a human being. And I was like, Jeff, you're going to be the male Candace Bushnell. 
Like, I don't think you understand. You didn't. You were like, you were probably right. <laughs> I just was like uh, feeling myself too much. Like when I look back, I heard you tell the story on the Dan Patrick show. I was like, wow, that was really audacious. Like what made me think I could do this? I don't even know if I knew who Candace Bushnell was, to be honest with you. So I probably Googled oh. Candace Bushnell. So yeah. the line might've gone over my head. But I also, the funny thing is like through the years, like after that, when I moved out to California, every now and then you or Jason, we'd be like, hey, we got an extra Laker ticket. And I would right. never go. And it was never. never. And it was just because I didn't believe you guys. And I just was like, really? Like, you guys are just yanking my chain. I just don't believe it. And I just really built this one. And also right around that time, in this time range, someone tried buying the rights to one of my books, took me to the Soho house, Soho house, right? Yes. And started showing me all the pictures. He had just recently been divorced and he starts scrolling through his phone, showing me pictures of every girl he had sex with. Naked pictures of women who, who had posed for him. And he's showing it to me. And I was like, this business is just, I need a shower. It's like Jerry Buzz. Yeah, kind of like, except I don't think Jerry Buzz took it to that level where he was showing naked pictures to Claire Rothman. But he had the books. I and he thought that was going to woo you or he thought that was going to be the thing that was going to be like, oh, yeah. I think he thought we were two bros in a in the Soho house and I'd be impressed by the Soho house and so and so. Meanwhile, I got like a wife and two young kids at home. Like I don't right. need to see your naked pictures of models. You're probably not <laughs> even having sex with. Oh, it's all well and good, right? Okay, Jeff, we want to we want to make you in the next Candace Bushnell. We want to make this a show and you come to my house and okay, I agree. I give you whatever month period. Like, how does it actually happen? I don't know. I don't remember. Like, it was just like. You know, you may not have trusted us, but you trusted us so much. Like you, you really did hang with us. There was a lot of places you could have jumped off the boat and you didn't, and I, you know, it probably did sound like bullshit at the time, but there were so many times when it was like close and people just blew it, you know? And I like to say, nobody really believed that this was a great idea until Kevin Messick and Adam McKay believed this was a great idea. And then it was like, boom. It's off to the races. By off to the races, I mean it was another five years, right? Like four years until until it finally comes out. But it all seemed to come together pretty quickly after that. Wait, let me ask you though. How does it? Um, I have no idea. Like you, you get the rights from me, and you're like, great, uh -huh. we have the rights. Like, how does it go from? What do you do? What did you do from there? Well, remember, and I don't want to name names. So, like, I was working with a pretty big movie star at the time, who I immediately took it to, and they were going to produce it along with somebody else. And then those two people got in an argument about who was going to get how much money. We had taken it out and pitched it one time. And that day they got into like a FU, FU, bomb, we're gone. And I was like morbidly depressed because we'd already put in almost nine months or so developing it by that point or a year. Wait, wait, wait. And what does that mean? Those nine months, what are you doing? I was out of Montauk all summer writing treatments and Bibles and just like breaking and re-breaking and re-breaking like what did I think it was? And, and, you know, I originally wanted it to be sort of the structure of Friday Night Lights, where it's like you do a season or season in a, or two every year throughout the course of the book, which is like 12 years. And HBO, just jumping forward, was like you could do one year, 12 episodes, all of the 80s. And then, then it was two years. And we broke it that way with a full room. And then Max was finally like, I think you're right. I think it needs to be more like just this year, this year, the first year is 7980. When you're initially writing it, writing, you're initially uh -huh. trying to get someone to, to bite on this. Do you write an episode and then do you write a explain? Like, what are you actually writing? 
I was writing like character descriptions and bios and stuff like that. Like there's a thing about a swan in the first episode in the pilot. And I had originally written that about magic because, you know, magic looks like the swan just kind of floating along gracefully on the surface, but underneath the legs are kicking like crazy because there's this huge work ethic, like magic outworked everybody, but you don't ever see the work ethic. So there was this like almost racist trope that magic, just everything comes easily to him because he's a, you know, you almost picture him not practicing, just stepping onto the court, but like, he was like the hardest working dude there was. Right. And then we ultimately use that for Jerry Buss as a line of dialogue yeah. uh, in the pilot. But it was like that. And it was like, I was writing, like, I was just going crazy. It was like spilling out. I was like writing these like 50, 80 page treatments and like breaking down what the episodes would be and, and what the care, what I saw the characters as. And, you know, ultimately when we showed it at HBO, I think, Messick and I distilled that down to a, like a 10 page deck with pictures. So that's what they finally bid on. Like you initially think you have this deal, then it falls apart. How right. does it ultimately wind up in the hands of Adam McKay? And Well, then we brought it to another financer. Do you remember this? And they bought, they did option it from you. It's all blurred. Another company. Yeah. yeah. And then they just didn't do a meeting on it for a year. And when the year was wrapping up, I had done stuff with Messick. This we is Kevin Messick. Yeah, Kevin Messick, the Adam McKay's producing partner, produces all those movies in succession. And and uh, we had worked on an animated project together at the very beginning of my career. And then he, after that, went to go work with Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and had just done the big short, which I thought was exceptional and exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to do in my career. So McKay had gone from like Anchorman to big short, which... I wouldn't put myself in the same, obviously not trying to compare myself to like, I had done Ice Ages, Ice Age movies, and now I was trying to do this, you know, hour long drama thing. So McKay had, anyway, I just thought McKay was the perfect person. So I, Kevin was like, yeah, let's have lunch. I told him I had three things and I showed him your book and I had extra copies. And he was like, I think the guys are going to like this. And from then it was like, he, they did like it. Then we met with, remember we went to Adam's house, you and I. Wait, I just want to say, so I get this call from Jim and he's like, uh, we're going to Adam McKay's house next week. <laughs> and I don't even know who Adam McKay is. I have no idea. I remember, that. I remember being like, you don't know who Adam McKay is? No, no idea. And also it's funny because the whole, one of the things that's definitely a recurring theme in our relationship during this is you saying names or shows and me immediately Googling them. And I'm not, my, my sports knowledge is a plus. I feel like my cinematic knowledge is like C minus all of a sudden. And, uh, so we get to Adam McKay's house and Adam McKay obviously has had a huge career and lots of success. And I think I was Googling his name outside of the house waiting. <laughs> and I remember we go in the house. I don't really know who this guy is. He's lying down. He's lying down and he was super friendly. And then when we left, you were, you were really psyched. And I didn't even know, yeah. like, I didn't even know what this meant. Well, most of the conversation too was you and him talking stats. Yeah. About like obscure baseball shit and like stuff I had. I was like, wow. I mean, I was really like, Adam really does know his shit when we left that house. I was like, he had just come back from like the World Series of Poker, some like huge poker tournament that he played in. He like drove to drove back from Vegas and met with us. And he was just like so chill. I remember laying on that couch? Right. Just like I was, the whole thing was like shocking because it, it was not what I expected. I'm like you, I'm illiterate in terms of Hollywood. Like I don't really know people unless 
So I think I'm the person that doesn't know anybody, but you really don't I'm really bad. care or know. Like, not bad. I think that's probably better. All right. So wait, when is the moment when you know, when you're like, yeah, this is because you kept saying to me, you did say many times, I just had this memory. Like, you'd be like, no, it's going to happen. And I was like, all right. Yeah. And you'd be like, I'm telling you, I already think it's going to happen. I'd be like, okay, whatever. When was the moment when you were like, this is really, really, really going to happen? Well, there was two. There was the one when we met with the two people that signed on the first time. I was like, this is a no brainer. This is going to happen. Yeah. And then that day when we went to Adam's, like when he was in, when Adam was like, I want to do this, basically, I was like, there's no way this doesn't happen at this point. So that moment we're sitting with Adam McKay, he's into it. You feel confident. I, I got to say, there was no, uh, this may not have come from inside of me, but like, there was no moment when I doubted this project. I know. There was no name. moment where I thought, this wasn't going to happen somehow. It just seems like there's so many obstacles, you know, like I feel like the reasons, I mean, among other things, like one of the reasons I've been optioned a lot, but never made a lot, you know, uh, nonfiction sports presents a lot of obstacles. Number one, these are real people. Number two, these are real teams. Number three, these are trademark logos and right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I just never, I was always like, I don't see how this is going to happen, I guess. It had never been done though, too. I mean, you got like that's the other, the third part of the audacity of the whole thing is nobody's ever made a, a TV series about a real team, right? At least not like this. And so, at least for the first one, it's really helpful to have HBO that's just like completely daring and will do new stuff and, and try it. And then I think the other part of that is like what I talked about earlier like, if you don't absolutely love it, you're going to give up at some point, right? Yeah, I mean, and also like your book just, I don't, I know you didn't intend it this way, but it reads like a TV treatment because it jumps back and forth in time, you know, and people weren't doing that as much back then, even in TV. Like some show, like OJ had, had teasers at the beginning where the character would be, you know, you kind of get a glimpse of the character, what made them into the person they were. And so when I read it, I was like, this is, I, I could see that in it already, like the teasers that go back and explain why Jerry Buss is this way, why Jerry West is that way, why Kareem is that way, you know, or some aspect of, of their, their personality that you see in our story. Right. And it just, it rolled out that way. Like it rolled out like a TV show. It was like, it was easy to see it. Right. I already thought that the whole time. That was my master plan. Just puppet master. <laughs> I will take over Hollywood with this. I am the next Candace Bush now. Google Candace Bush. <laughs> um, wait, I want to say like, so for, for me, the moment of moments was um, there was a day when my wife and I, I guess I can say this now, we both have cameos in the first episode. Actually, my kids uh -huh. do too. But there was this day my wife and I were on the set and there was this moment where, so I'm basically, I'm a reporter. If you blink, you'll miss me. It was awesome. It was mm -hmm. so fun. And there was a moment when Adam McKay was like, hey, everyone, um, the guy over there, that's Jeff Perlman. He wrote the book he's the reason this is, you know, blah, blah, blah thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone just clapped. Right. Uh -huh. And it was one of the warmest, nicest moments of my life. And the other moment was when, um, what's the actor's name who plays Norm Nixon? Devon oh, no, excuse me. Not Norm Nixon, Michael Cooper. Oh, Delante. Delante. Right. He's sitting, I'm just chatting with him on set one day and he's wearing his Michael Cooper outfit. So it's like talking to him like a guy <laughs> like talking to Michael Cooper. And he's like, uh, do you ever think to yourself, like you don't write this book. None of us have a job right now doing this. And this, yeah. this pretend, whatever, it doesn't exist. And I was like, man, that's so cool. And that's so kind. And uh, like warms my heart. And I wonder for yourself, 
you put so much into this. It was so many years. It's a pain in the ass. It's a grind. It's no, it's no, it's no, it's no. Did you have a moment or have you had moments where you're like, holy shit, this is holy shit. Yeah. I think it's right now, you know, on your podcast, it's really yeah, all coming right. crashing home. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, this is one of my first interviews ever, Jeff. So like there's a certain, there's a, there's a moment of that in it, but no, I think it was, I mean, the one that I remember the most clearly, I think this is the day you were there when we were shooting the series, at least, was uh, when I walked into the forum, the oh, yeah, set cool. for the forum, and it was full, and the Laker girls were there, and there's the guys, our team, our cast, and the, the vintage uniforms, and like, it was like walking into my, you know, that court that I, you know, my dad would buy tickets two rows from the ceiling. And it was like walking into, it was like Fantasy Island, you know, where the guy, I don't remember, know if anybody remembers Fantasy Island, but like, it was like Mr. Rourke could construct my fantasy and I'm like walking onto that court. My dear guests, I am Mr. Rourke, your host. Welcome to Fantasy Island. And it was like, holy shit, this is all really happening. And it'll be in little moments too. I'll walk past a sign that says Department of Basketball Hair. Like, this is kind of cool. Like I work in a, in a, my work has a department of basketball hair. Uh, but yeah, there's been little moments like that through. I mean, the first day of shooting was like that. I mean, I complicated the shit out of the first day of shooting on the pilot because I got engaged that day, you know? Oh, yeah. At Ross's, right? And At Ross, yeah. And part of the grand plan was Courtney came to work to pick me up that day. I don't remember what excuse I had for that. But for some reason, she had to come pick me up at the golf course. That was the first day that we shot. And everybody, the time she got there, everybody knew that I was going to propose to her that day. And so when she showed up, nobody would talk to her because they were all afraid they were going to spoil it. And so she was like, why is everybody so mean? Like, <laughs> why is people like so aloof? Wait, please tell the story of proposing at Ross's Dress for Less. Yeah. So then I made up a story because Max and I met the night before. And I was like, I made up a story that I left my backpack in the Uber and he had my backpack or something and i had to rush to ross to get a because i needed a backpack to get through the pilot just to get through the pilot and i almost screwed it up because okay so courtney she married somebody else first whatever and uh, uh got divorced and after her divorce would kind of wander around ross and cry <laughs> i didn't know that part honestly uh -huh. but i knew that she loved ross she always goes to ross she, she is if you don't know my wife, she's an anchor woman. She's like, seems sort of glamorous on TV. All of her stuff is Ross, Marshalls, TJ Maxx, Amazon, one-tenth of the price. Like For people who are not listening, um, so Courtney Friel, so she is a kindred spirit in me. To me, since I'm Jewish anyway, when people say the Holy Trinity, I don't <laughs> think the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I think Ross, Marshalls, and uh, TJ Maxx. Exactly. That's according to a T. And so we we're doing the tech scout for the pilot. I was like, how am I going to do this proposal? And Rebecca, one of our writers, who was then an assistant, was like, take her to Ross. That's her favorite store. Take her to Ross. And I was like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. And then it kind of grew on me. And so the whole production team was like workshopping my proposal during the pilot shoot. And McKay had this whole thing worked out where I would take her to what is it, Wabo Cabo, uh -huh. the Sammy Hagar place uh -huh. in Tampa, I think. And I forget who would be playing guitar and we would like 
ATV in and it was like this whole, he went on a riff for it must've been half an hour, an hour about my, about this ridiculous proposal I was gonna do. Didn't go with that plan, went with the Ross plan. And I almost screwed it up on the way because she was like, wait, why do you want to go to Ross? I was like, well, cause they have the backpack that I want. And they told me they put it on hold for me. And I didn't know Ross doesn't have like a website and stuff like that. Like you can't go on and see what they have. Definitely not. It's a treasure hunt. Yes. And she pointed out, I was like, no, 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 they have a website. Fortunately, they do have a website. I was like, see, look, there's, she's driving, so she can't really pay attention. She doesn't think about it too much. In the meantime, one of the production design people had gone to Ross. We'd scouted this for days. She had talked to Ross. She production designed an aisle of the bedding aisle for the proposal. So we walk in and she was way more distracted. She's totally immersed in her phone. And when she finally looks up, she sees this aisle and she's like, oh my God, is somebody like doing a prom thing here? What is going on? So she thought I was joking when I went over and I like got on one knee. She was like thinking I was being like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if, and when I pulled out the ring, she laughed herself to tears. We're like, she had to put all her weight on me to stand up. And I'm just trying to get through this proposal. And then her parents had flown in from Florida and they were there. They surprised her and her kids and a bunch of her friends and stuff like that. People wanted to take pictures with us that were in the Ross and like. That's outstanding. She still goes back there and people are like, you're the girl that got married here. Ross put it on their thing, their website. They sent us the whole package and like. I would say Ross yeah. can give you an eternal 20% discount, but the beauty of Ross is you don't need a 20% discount. That's right. It's just a standing discount. Ross. And I, you know, in a reverse, she was like dressed up because she was just coming from anchoring the news. And I was like in, in a t-shirt, I picked out my best t-shirt. Very nice. I was dressed, I was, it was, I was wearing a Jeff Perlman outfit. I was doing t-shirt and shorts, hey. I think. Or... That's how we do here. No, it's amazing. It's a great story. Can I put the capper on that story? Yeah, please do. So she plays a news anchor on the radio in the pilot who does like the news of the first draft pick thing when Rob is like driving in the truck. Oh, interesting. Remember that scene? Of course. And that scene comes right after the day that we shot the one I proposed to her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it goes right from the day to her voice. Wow, that's so cool. I just noticed that when we, we did the mix the other day. I was like, oh my God, that's full circle right there. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with Anna, my daughter's college pal, and a young woman who's going through a tough time. My dog Pablo died recently. I'm inconsolable. Don't worry, Anna. Pablo's with Jesus right now. Really? With Jesus Christ? On a cloud in heaven? Uh, no. I meant Jesus Montoya, late one-time kicker for the San Antonio Gunslingers of the USFL. I know Pablo is a big fan of Arroyo Retros, home of the best throwback jerseys, hats, and t-shirts. So I'm sure he's with Jesus, rocking some gear and visiting RoyalRetros.com. Gonna be honest, I really preferred him in heaven with our Lord and Savior. Don't push your luck, kid. Your dog shit on the rug. A lot. All right, so you have this long journey. Mm-hmm. You have this show coming out. It premieres March 6th on HBO Max. You're coming to the premiere. Are you excited? Sure, of course. Is this your first premiere? Do you know me at all? I mean, like I'm assuming it is, but there's I'm, you know you, I did go to I did go to a straight out of Compton screening, I think. But I haven't been to many. There people. you go. Yeah, no. Okay. Um are you nervous? Like, how do you so you work on the show, you have this dream, you have this vision, mm-hmm. blah 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 blah. Is there a party that's like, what if everyone hates this? What if it doesn't go well? What if or are you just like this is gonna be great? Do you have the same confidence you have now? They had when you showed her my house with a block of chocolate. I do. And I hate almost everything else that I work on, as do a lot of critics. I, uh, for some reason, don't have any doubts that it's good because, you know, I've obviously seen them all. 
uh, I don't have any doubts about that. I have like, for me, just anything that's big and exciting is also kind of scary. And so I have a lot of anxiety about it for some reason that I can't quite explain. I have my therapist later today. We'll figure it out. Yeah. But uh, I feel like I have more fear than excitement or joy about it, even though I know it's going to be great. And I think it's going to be big. And I don't have any actual anxiety or fear about the product or the, the show. I think life yeah. is very strange in this regard. And I think people don't talk about this enough. We're always looking towards something. So everything you do in working on this show is toward the end, which is the end, which is the show coming out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we really do forget that the journey usually is more fun than the result. This whole journey of putting it together, the fight to have it made, casting, finding a perfect guy to be magic. I don't know, you know, like showing up that first day and seeing your name on a chair. I don't even know, you know, like showing up on set and it's mm -hmm. craft services has the oatmeal you love, you know, whatever, like all these little mm -hmm. moments, we tend to overlook them because there's this end thing. And oftentimes yeah. the joy is in the process itself. Well, that's the whole show. That's the yeah. only reason why winning time is actually an appropriate title yeah. because we're all chasing this like elusive moment somewhere in the future, the winning time that is not real not when we're thinking about, you know, like it's in, it's, it's out there, it's uh, ethereal, it's temporal, it's gone in an instant in a flash, and then you have to chase it again, or it's in the past, you know, some time that we look back to, or like, that's the winning time, or in Jerry West's case, that's the losing time, yeah. you know, and I had worked with, I worked with Will Smith one time, and uh, he said, you know, you have to be like, you can't say like, I like being in movies, because by the time the movie comes out and the premiere is like, you're working on something else. It's out for a week. If you're lucky, it's successful for two weeks and then it's gone. You have to be like, I love making movies. I love, you know, sitting in my trailer and breaking down the words of a script and, you know, the, the stuff you have to find love in the otherwise banal moments and the stuff that goes by when you're in it, you have to find joy in whatever moment you're in. You can't be chasing that when it comes out. I think that's so, I was just thinking about my Bo Jackson book, which is coming out later this year and uh -huh. it'll come out and you know, you do the TV shows, some TV shows and some radio, you do a lot of radio and the book comes out and people says, I love it or hate it or whatever. But meanwhile, there's this moment where I'm on Bo Jackson street in Bessemer, Alabama, where he grew up knocking <laughs> yeah. on strange doors, asking if people remember Bo Jackson and like, you think those moments are all means to an end, but in a lot of ways, those are the ends. Like those are the exciting moments, like that yeah. and waiting for someone to answer the door and you don't know if they're going to come out smiling or frowning. Like those are the exciting moments and the book coming out is just like, it's cool, but it's very fleeting. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, for me anyway, this is the show, you know what I mean? It's like, you'll see when you're going through it, these people are probably not any more happy than anybody else. Like they're going through life with jobs and tensions and, depressions, Jerry, in Jerry West's case, more than a few depressions. And you kind of go, if they can't enjoy that time being a Laker any more than I enjoy my job in my life, then it show, goes to show you there's no amount of stuff or thing or whatever. It's all about the moment that you're in. And that's, that's, that's something that's learned, at least for me. You know, I think you get it as a child, but like when you can't, you know, you don't have the same brain to think forward and backwards. Like, or when you're drunk, I think you're very present because you blasted your brain. But I think as an adult, it's been very hard for me to realize that like, you know, it's that thing about all you have is right now. 
the complication about it is like, um, like, you know, like writing is really hard and uh-huh. I think it is. And it, at least for me, and it sucks my soul and it beats me up and I hate everything I write. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to enjoy it. Like it's actually, yeah. you have to work to enjoy it because it's hard to enjoy it. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a muscle. It's a skill to be present and enjoy the moment, whatever it is. And like, sometimes I feel horrible when I'm writing something totally horrible just like if i can't figure something out actually i have long talks about this but like when you can't figure out something in your project your script whatever it is really depressing and it hangs on you until you figure it out and i always go to this place and and even max with as much success as he's had it's like you go to this place of like why did i ever think i could do this i can't do this like i'll never have an, i'll never be able to do it again that's really important because I'm sure writers who haven't been doing this for a long time think you lose that as you get older or more established, but you really don't. Like you still have tons of moments where you, not only are you like, this sucks. You're like, why do I think I can do this? I can't do this. Or I don't ever get this because I definitely get this. Mm -hmm. I've lost my touch. I I don't know Mm -hmm. what happened. I've lost my touch. I can't do it. Yeah. And everybody that I talk to, people way more successful than me, you know, they have the same thought when you get stuck on you can't figure out how to do something for a little while and and even with all the evidence of i've always found a way to figure it out and always had a breakthrough at some point every time i've never given up i've always found a way through it in the moment as intellectually as i know that i can't see that at all yeah it's a mind and that goes back to the earlier thing about like like versus love because if you like it you'll just find a way through it right but if you love it you're not going to get through it until you find the thing that you love in that moment of it wait so i have a question for you we talked a little bit about this before i started recording i have a friend who wrote on a show he's a longtime journalist named chris jones and he had a show come out last year i think it was called away it was about uh these astronauts who i don't remember what it was called it was on netflix it lasted one season it was actually i enjoyed it but it got uh-huh. And Chris took part in the writer's room and he would be in the writer's room. And he's like, it's great, man. Every day, my favorite peanut butter cups show up from Trader Joe's. These Trader Joe's peanut butter cups show up every day. And it's wonderful. And being in a writer's room is wonderful. I think being in a writer's room sounds awful. The sharing, the having to listen to everyone else's ideas. Yeah. Is a writer's room great or awful? Both. You know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, when I first started doing it, because I had only ever written by myself before, I hated it. It was just a constant, like, someone else who had done it a lot was like, there's two kinds of times in writer's room. There's like ego crushing, anxiety riddled, you know, pride destroying, grind, and even worse, ego it was like like yeah. even worse of that stuff and in the early days that was really my experience of it because i was also like jumping in at like a level that was not i was like i was trying to jump into the you know the major leagues from from high school baseball or something like that like i had never done it and these guys are really good at it and uh i think it's only through four again it was pride that like in love of this show that maybe stick it out or i wouldn't have done it right yeah as writers were not programmed to work with other people or not really. But then there's, you know, you get into it. It's like, there's times when the ideas are flying and snowballing and people are building off each other and you can watch a show like Succession and you're like, that I think is only built that way because like 
in a moment, there was a thing where ideas were flying back and forth and things were building and jumping on each other and like became this amazing thing that happens in a show. Like, I, I do think there's an element of that that can only build in TV. And it also taught me to like, just in terms of process, like really get in. Like, I thought I was really into the outlining and stuff like that, but the re-breaking of it, the re-looking at examining of it, the, the constant, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together again that that's all stuff that I've learned doing this room and and it's made me like it's made me a different writer like it was really painful but I came out of it I think closer to the writer that I've always wanted to be do they bring you free food yeah they do yeah <laughs> well not now because we're on zoom so they just put it in our paycheck I've, I actually <laughs> didn't realize you guys are in zoom you're 100% writing on zoom now we're back on zoom due to the uh the whatever whatever variant we're on now was writing on Zoom, is it a much harder process being collaborative? I like it a lot better. Oh, why? Max and I disagree on this. He's an office person. And there's, you know, there's just different kinds of people. Like, I want to walk from my bedroom the 15 feet to here and kind of roll out of bed and do it. And you get to put the thing up on screen where everybody's looking at the same thing. Right. And concentrating on the same document. And uh, I just, I, I think better that way for some reason. It's a, it's a, it was a challenge. I mean, it's only because I've been doing it eight, 10 hours a day now for three years or however long it's been, two years since the pandemic started. And at first my ADD was off the charts and I still had moments of that, but then it was like, I could find deeper focus than I could in the room. I think there's less of a social anxiety, self-consciousness uh, element to it, but it's also just that thing of being able to all look at the same document in your face. I mean, I guess you could do it on, a, I don't know. You could probably recreate that in the room if everybody had an iPad or something. That, to me, it's just, I don't know, it works a lot better. But more than that, when I take a break, I'm not like taking a break around all the people that I look at, that I work with. Like I can go play with my dogs and be completely out of it for 15 minutes. But no free sandwiches anymore. That's, yeah, I got to order every day from Postmates. Yeah. Nobody's doing that for me. Damn it. Can you expense the sandwich? Well, they give us some sort of allowance. Let me ask you a final question. I always ask this. All right. So I ask this when I ask sports writers, I ask them, uh, what's the worst person they've dealt with in a clubhouse, you know, in the sport, in their career. I'm just going to ask you, what was the, what was the lowest moment of your writing career? Like the moment. Who's my John Rocker? Yeah, uh, you have a John Rocker. Or if you don't, I just mean, what's the lowest moment of your writing career? What's been the hardest moment of your writing career? There was this time I was writing something for like, I'm going to get in trouble with this, but I have a, I have a rule that I can work. I can work for bad people if they're really good at their jobs. I can stomach the horrible feeling of working with the, that person if they're also great at what they do. I can work with people that are bad at what they do if they're really good people. I, I, I had sold this big pitch. It got bought and turned around by a producer who, was, who broke both my rules, was like an objectively horrible person and also really terrible at his job. Just really bad creatively, no instincts, always wanted to do kind of stupid stuff for no reason and was a crazy person who would like call me one day and fire me. And then the next day I wanted to come over to my house and be my best friend. And uh, they sort of extorted me into doing the thing for free, which was an animation. It was an animated project. They, they can point anybody and give them credit because it's not WGA basically. Right. And I had a very big bonus if the movie got made like a life-changing kind of thing. And he was like, well, we noticed you have a huge bonus on this. If you ever want to see that, you need to do this for free. Oh. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar corporation forcing me to work for free for a couple months. So what'd you do? 
So I did. I swallowed my pride and I threw myself into it. And in the meantime, the director that we brought in kind of was going by my house, but behind my back and trying to get rid of me so he could hire his friend. And so halfway through, you know, four weeks, six weeks into doing this free work for them, they fired me. Wow. Yeah. And just took it away. So no bonus. Fortunately, Kevin Messick negotiated that I would get the bonus no matter what. Wow. But they're fine. Do with it what you will, because I'm protected and I don't want to be around these people ever again. Right. And of course, they did a horrible job and the movie never got made. Uh, snatching defeat out of the hands of victory. But I was so angry. I didn't know how much anger I had as a person yeah. until this happened. And I, all I could do was fight with these people in my head. And did things that I regret and told people stuff that I regret. And to this day, it gives me like nightmares of, oh my God, I can't believe I said that to that person. Right. And um, that's why I started really that and a breakup that was going on at the same time brought me to my knees. And that's why I started getting into the meditation that led to the experience of finding your book. Man. So really, basically you owe me everything. Everything. I told you it was Easter Sunday. What was resurrected on that Easter Sunday was my fucking career in my life. There you go. And here we are. So in the middle of that, when everything fell apart with the actor and the producer the first time around, my 16-year-old golden retriever died. And I was under the table with him waiting to put him down, basically. I spent the whole night up with him, like holding him. And um, I went on my Instagram and that girl had gotten engaged that day. Wow. And then when it came back together, it wasn't the day that we met with McKay, but it was around that time where it was one of those like euphoric, this is going to happen kind of things. I ran into her and it was pre- she was pregnant, very pregnant. And I was like so grateful for her no. for starting this whole thing that got me to the best thing in my life. Aside from my wife, the greatest thing in my life. Oh, that's awesome. There you go. Jim Hecht. Moments like that throughout, like, the day we got greenlit was the day after I threw out all my Ice Age stuff. Wow, really? I had them behind me, not here in the old house. Where I was moving. And I was finally like, you know what? This is just crap. And I'm, I'm, I'm lugging it around. It's weighing me down and tying me to that time. I threw those out. And it was like the next day we got greenlit. And now you are the hottest name in Hollywood. Uh. Okay. I'm barely the hottest name in my old house. I told you, I told you when I, when you came to my house, we, I was going to make you the, uh, the Quentin Tarantino of Hollywood. I told you that. And look at you. And here, here we are household name. Yeah. Nice job. Uh, well, Jim, I appreciate you doing this. Obviously. Um, it's been a life changing experience for me and my family and yeah, I appreciate it. I really, I truly yeah, I'm so grateful. We got to go through it together. I'll go to that next Laker game with you. Okay, good. I'm going to hold you to that. I want to thank today's guest, Jim Hecht, for joining me on Two Writers Sing and Yang. You can follow Jim on Instagram at Jim Hecht and watch Winning Time on HBO Max beginning March 6th. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sing and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this pod and I rely on word of mouth. Also, check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember... Keep writing.